0: You know, today is Reformation Day. October 31st was the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the University of Wittenberg. And this is a very important day in the history of the church. And I like to take the time to focus on Christian holidays that sometimes get forgotten or, or overlooked and not that their importance is not recognized, but we don't always take a day to look at this. So we're going to do that today. Everybody loves to talk about their heritage, to find out where they came from, to think about their culture and what happened in the past. This is our heritage. As Protestant Christians, the Reformation is our heritage, and I've taken time in the past to tell the whole story in great detail, and those messages have all run way too long, so we're we're not going to do that again, but we are going to tell some of the story, and we're also going to focus on one emphasis of the Reformation that we sometimes fail to realize or give appropriate attention to. The Protestant Reformation is famous for its emphasis on the Scripture, right? Sola Scriptura. And if we're going to be establishing doctrine, it comes from the Scripture. And tradition is only as useful as it further elaborates what Scripture already says. And also, this was the time where the Bible was translated and it was given to the people so that they could start reading it again. And that's one of the main focuses of the Reformation. And at Calvary Chapel, Trustville, especially... We are second to none in our esteem of the Bible. We teach through it verse by verse every week, and everything we try to do ought to be grounded in Scripture. But there is another side to this. Unfortunately, not sure why this is, but this is the case. The study of Scripture and having a high esteem of the Bible can turn into a merely intellectual exercise. It's about figuring out what it means. Categorizing and systematizing all the truths, knowing them, and then sitting down and feeling good about yourself. As opposed to any lively fellowship with the God of the Bible himself. Jesus had this trouble even with the Pharisees. Do you remember? He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. And you say, wait a minute, I thought we did find life in the scriptures. No, what did he say? These are they which testify of me. There are professors of the Bible that do not know Jesus. And the Bible is God's word, but the Bible is meant to point us to the God of the word. And we can be sterile and dry in our worship and in our piety if we somehow make the Bible into a textbook alone. And you know, the Reformation didn't just bring the Bible back to the people. It brought worship music and congregational singing back to the church. Our heritage as Protestants is just as much that of worship and song as it is the study of the Bible. And as we will see, the Bible itself does not set music and singing as its opposite, as we so unfortunately often do. Well, we're a word church. We're a worship church. The Bible does not understand such distinctions. The Bible views worship through song as a definite marker of being filled with the Holy Spirit and also the sign, worship and music, as the sign that you have properly allowed the Word to fill your life. If you truly have an understanding of the Word, then there ought to be a song in your heart coming out of your mouth. It should not be the case that those who have the most sound doctrine have the driest piety, isn't that unfortunately the case? The folks whose doctrine is all correct and you can't find a single flaw with it, you go to those churches and it's dry as a bone. It's dead as a doornail. We got everything right, but everybody's falling asleep. But then you've got other churches where their doctrine is, is off and you look at it and you kind of go, ah, I don't know, why would you say it like that? But then when they begin to sing and they begin to pray, man, people are on fire. And you can say, yeah, I know for sure these people love Jesus, even if they're a little off on some of these things. There should not be a distinction that way. So while I do not believe that we as a church need correction in this department, we always need a good reminder. And we could certainly use some encouragement towards zeal in our worship, towards fire in our worship of the Lord. So we're going to begin by remembering the story, and then we're going to open up the Bible to see what the Bible has to say about it. And then we're going to turn to ourselves and see... How am I living these truths out if I really believe this? So let's tell the story of the Protestant Reformation. We're going to have to skip some things. There's all a whole lot more to be discussed, but let's just remember. By the 1500s, the church had become a rigid, quasi-political institution that bore little resemblance to the book of Acts. Well, something we always try to do is look back to the Bible and the example that was set by the church in Acts and say, how are we living up to that? We not, might not look exactly like that, but are we at least getting the core things right? Well, at this point, in this medieval age of the church, it had basically none, no resemblance to that. And not only that, I want to add, the church at this point very, bore very little resemblance to how the church had looked for most of church history many of these developments that had come into the church and had ossified it were were fairly recent. And there were many in the church that were upset with this. Things like offices in the church being bought and sold. Because being a bishop was no longer a spiritual role, it was a political role. And if you wanted to be powerful, you needed to be the bishop of five or six different episcopacies, as they were called. But don't worry about that word. Priests were Ordained by who they knew and the amount of money they had rather than their qualifications, according to 1 Timothy and Titus. There were things called indulgences that were being sold. What did this mean? Well, if you've got a grandmother in purgatory, all you got to do is spring is a few bucks and out she goes, and she'll be in heaven forever and ever. Or if you committed a sin or knew that you were going to commit a sin, you could pay a little extra money. And get that one forgiven and not have to worry about it. And the Pope had become the absolute dominant head of the church. You can search your Bible all you want. You will not find the word Pope in there or its, or it's Greek equivalent. And there were many that were not comfortable with this. They're saying, well, wait a minute, we, we're not, we don't have a king of the church. Where did this come in? The only king of the church is Jesus Christ. A wall had been built around God. The the services were not in the language that people spoke. It was in Latin. The songs that were sung by the choir, exclusively by the choir, were in Latin. You weren't allowed to read the Bible. Never mind you couldn't because it wasn't in your language. You weren't allowed to read the Bible. Even the average priest had never read the scripture before. You were only allowed to take the bread during communion. You weren't allowed to take the bread and the cup. That was only for the clergy, those who were ordained. And the church had become a kingmaker and a political figure rather than the church of Jesus Christ as it was supposed to be. This all came to a head. There had been many in the church that were not happy with this. Men like Jan Hus and John Wycliffe and others. But in 1517... There was a man named John Tetzel who was set out to sell indulgences, to raise money, to build a cathedral, and also to purchase a third bishopric for a guy named Albert of Brandenburg. And he starts going around hawking forgiveness to people on the street. If you want to be forgiven of your sins, just drop your coin in the bucket. And if you want your grandma, your grandpa, your daughter who died, your son who died, you want them to go to heaven, and you want to be sure that they're in heaven, you just got to pay a few bucks. And I'll give you this indulgence. And this was obviously so corrupt. This is really what tipped it over the edge. This caught the ire of a monk named Martin Luther. You know this name. Martin Luther was a German. He was raised as a commoner. Nobody special. But he left the profession that his father had set up for him to join the Augustinian monks. And to make a very long story short, he began teaching at the university in Wittenberg, Germany. He began teaching through the Bible. And on October 31st, 1517, this is 504 years ago, he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the university as a protest against the indulgences. These 95 theses were 95 points that called into question the entire doctrine of the selling of indulgences. But it had greater implications far beyond just that issue. Because during his time in Wittenberg, Luther had discovered, through teaching through the book of Romans, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. Gotta say, rediscovered. He realized that salvation was not something that the church existed to buy and sell and to dispense when they felt like it, but it was something that had been purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. That there was nothing you could do to save yourself. The only thing that could be done is placing faith in Jesus Christ and that it was God's grace that saved you. And he had been quietly teaching this at the university. Not secretly, but nobody really cared. He was teaching at some obscure university in Germany. But now all of this was going to come to a head because in nailing these 95 theses, he not only exposed his own doctrine, but he showed it to the rest of the world. And a lot of people didn't like what he had to say. And a lot of others really liked what he had to say. And it heated up very quickly. In 1518, he was brought before a Roman cardinal, a guy named Cayetan. He was ordered to recant, which is to renounce everything that he had written and believed before this. And if you know anything about Martin Luther's character, he he was kind of a hard-headed individual. What kind of man would God have to raise up to smash the medieval, medieval Catholic church? That kind of guy. So you drag him before a cardinal, and he says, you have to recant everything you said. He says, well, we're going to talk about this first. And the Cardinal's like, no, we're not going to talk about this. You do as I say. And he refused. He was actually ordered to be arrested at that point. But his, the head of his order, the Augustinian order, before the order came to arrest him, because he knew he was going to be given that order, he released him from his uh, order from to the monks and that, the Augustinians so that he could run away. He said, well, I don't have any authority over him anymore. He's not a monk as of five minutes ago, so I can't arrest him. He was... Able to leave, his, his prince, the, uh, the prince of Saxony, protected him and wasn't allowed him to be arrested. And during this time, he began to write, kind of fully laying out his doctrines. He wrote one called the Babylonian Captivity of the Church, in which he compared the Catholic Church, which was the only church at this time, to Babylon. And that the people of God are being held captive by the Pope and by those who were part of the church, which did not make him many friends in Rome, as you can imagine. And on January 3rd, 1521, he was formally excommunicated. But his prince, the one over his his territory, arranged for him to have a discussion and a a trial before the Holy Roman Emperor, which at this time the Holy Roman Empire consisted mostly of Germany. Rome had kind of shrunk until it was mostly Germany. And in April 1521, he was called before the emperor, he was called before the Roman officials, They laid out all of his books that he had written and said, did you write these? Yes, I did. Do you recant what you've written here? And there's that famous quote that he gave, which maybe you know, at at that time when they asked him to recant his doctrine, the understanding of grace through faith. He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor wise to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. That is a brave man, isn't it? He was basically signing his own death warrant. However, once again, Prince Frederick, the wise, as he was called, spirited him away to a place called Wartburg Castle. He was supposed to go to Rome to be burned at the stake, but they hid him. They hid him in this castle. He grew this big, long beard. He started calling himself George, so nobody would know who he was. And during that time, he translated the New Testament into German translated the Bible into the common language for the first time. The last person to try that was John Wycliffe, and he'd been burned at the stake. And again, I've got to make a very long story short, but these things began to proliferate, and people began to get hold of these doctrines. Political leaders started getting hold of the Protestant doctrines because they saw this as their way to wriggle out from underneath Rome. We don't have to do what the Pope says anymore. We'll just become Protestant. That's what England did. But the, the last big moment I guess we could look at is in 1530. This is when, again, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, called all of the, the princes of Germany and the, the surrounding areas, and he called them together and said, y'all are going to be Catholic. We're not doing this Protestant thing anymore. But five of them filed a formal protest, which is where we get the word Protestant from, where they refused to go back to the old ways. Philip Melanchthon, who was a disciple of Martin Luther, wrote something called the Augsburg Confession, where they laid out Protestant doctrine for the first time, laid it before the emperor and said, we're not doing this. And actually, you you can see how the Lord was sovereignly at work because the, the Turkish armies, the Muslim armies, were marching on Europe at this time. The emperor became so busy that he was unable to attend to that and enforce his edicts. And so Protestantism spread like wildfire. The Reformation exploded after that. You had men like Ulrich Zwingli, men like John Calvin, who started to take up the charge. And, I mean, the rest is history. Here we stand. The Protestant church is is everywhere now. And the church continued to grow, and it actually continued to splinter, unfortunately. And there's a lot of ways to look at this and, and see the tragedy of the church being broken into pieces. But I think the verse that defines the Reformation for me is 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. 19. Paul said, There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Unity is a remarkable thing. We need unity in the church. But Paul also said, There comes a time where it's important for the true and the false to separate so that it can be seen who is who. This insistence on bringing the scriptures to the people was part of the belief in something that was called the priesthood of all believers. Luther and some of these others, they looked at the Bible and they say, you know, there's really not this stark difference between clergy and laymen that the church has emphasized for so long. Yes, there are leaders in the church, but these are to be servant leaders. And everybody has the Holy Spirit within them. There's even a place in 1 John where it says, you have no need that anybody should teach you, for the Holy Spirit is your teacher. And so this is why they began to give the Bible to the common man. And it's why we led to things like us, having an inductive Bible study class. Not only are we keeping, not keeping the Bible from you, we're teaching you how to study it and encouraging you to read it and study it for yourself. This affected areas like communion, the Lord's Supper. It was called communion in both kinds. It was a big deal. You're giving the bread and the cup to the people? That's only for the priests. And the reformers would say something to the effect of, well, you got a verse for that? No, you don't. <laughs> but this also affected the way that the church worshipped. Martin Luther rewrote much of the church liturgy at this time. And the Protestants were always calling him and saying, well, if we're not going to do it in the Roman way, well, what are we going to do now? And he would write orders of service for them to use. And it included way more music than had been included before. And it encouraged the congregation to sing along, not just the priests that would chant or sing the songs. Up to this point, and this might be hard for you to think about, there was no congregational singing in the church. It wasn't just something that wasn't done, it was considered wrong to have the people singing in the church. There were no new songs being written. But not only did Martin Luther insist on new songs being written, he started translating the old ones, taking them out of Latin and putting them in German or whatever the language happened to be. He solicited worship songs from godly poets, says, I want you to write some new worship songs for us. He wrote songs himself. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. That was Martin Luther that wrote that. Not only that, they began to set them to the tunes that the people recognized and knew. They used to take the most popular songs, completely rewrite the words, but keep the same tune and sing it in the church. This was a very unique thing to the Protestant Reformation and angered an awful lot of people. I told you before, though, that Martin Luther had kind of a hard head and he was a... Rather strong-willed individual. I have a quote that I want us to read here that he had about music. And you kind of get a sense of his attitude in this first line. He says, uh, I have no use for cranks who despise music. Because it is a gift of God. This is his attitude. Music drives away the devil and makes people gay. They forget thereby all wrath, unchastity, arrogance, and the like. Next, after theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. Experience proves that next to the word of God, only music deserves to be extolled as the mistress and governess of the feelings of the human heart. One of the greatest theologians the church has ever had says, after, after theology, music, worship music, singing in the church. And it's rather ironic to me that many of those who would use the title Reformed for themselves have a rather antagonistic attitude towards music. Even though the first reformer was perhaps the most eager of all of them. He invited the congregation back into the worship of God. When you went to church back then, you showed up, you sat down, you paid attention, you went home. That was how you worshipped, while the priest did all the work. But now by doing this, it was one more way of inviting the congregation to participate in the worship of the Lord. Don't just listen to the singing. You yourself sing. Sing in words that you can understand to train your heart and instruct you in new doctrine. Now, there were other reformers that didn't like this. Luther was very ahead of his time in this way. Other reformers refused to include music in their worship. They said, if you're going to do this, you need to use psalms only, because that's what the Bible says, and you're not allowed to sing them, you can chant them. You can read them together, like we read this one earlier this morning. But no, but no singing, that's not allowed. Or an only later, okay, you can sing them now, but they, they can't be any kind of exciting tunes, because we're, we're not trying to get happy here, we're, we're just trying to, to learn something. And there's a whole long history we could get into another time, but men like Johann Sebastian Bach, men like Isaac Watts, men like Charles Wesley, and others would, would continue, they'd pick up where Luther had left off, Bach began to introduce instruments and that kind of music into the church. Isaac Watts was the one who said, yeah, we're singing the psalm, that's great, but there's no psalm that mentions Jesus' name or talks about the, the cross or, or that describes salvation and justification by faith. He began to write his own lyrics that express those truths. Charles Wesley, you know, was the brother of John Wesley, and there was a whole explosion of worship music that came from that revival, the Great Awakenings. And today, it's unthinkable for us to gather for worship without beginning with songs of praise. It almost feels like we're missing something. Oh, we're just going to jump right in. Okay, I I guess so. Every new move of God has resulted in an explosion of new music. And this was no exception. It's exactly what happened. Psalm 40 verse 3 says, The Lord put a new song in my mouth a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Martin Luther and the reformers, they didn't just discover the doctrine of grace through faith. They discovered the joy that comes from such a discovery. And they expressed that joy through music and worship and song. They were so overjoyed to realize God is not making me live up to something in order to be saved. He saved me when I was dead in my sins. That's called putting a song in my mouth, a song in your heart. I just can't help myself. I've got to worship the Lord. They discovered that afresh. The Lord is bringing it back to his people. That's the story. Now let's see, as we ought to, how does this hold up scripturally? What place ought worship music to have for the church? And I'm going to use the word worship as I go through this. It's almost tiresome to say it at this point. Worship is not just singing, but it's a big part of it. When it describes worship in heaven, they're usually singing, right? Well, the first indication that this is important is that the book of Psalms absolutely dominates the center of your Bible, doesn't it? You open up your Bible, and it's probably going to be Psalms, right? There's a lot of songs in there. God goes, okay, what else do we need in the Bible? How about 150 songs? We'll stick them right in the middle so that everybody knows where they are. Seems to be important, don't you think? Heroes of the faith, from Moses to David, of course. Solomon, it says he wrote a thousand and five songs. Mary, Hannah, they wrote songs in the Bible for us to read and to ponder. It seems to be a part of worship. For those that have an amazing encounter with the Lord, it usually results in in a song in the Bible. But it is possible To miss the point and to see those things in the Bible as nothing more than theological poetry and to do your best to tear apart all of the poetic elements just to get at the so-called truth underneath it and fail to bridge the gap to properly valuing worship music yourself. Sometimes, this, this always makes me laugh, you read commentaries on certain psalms where it repeats things or it, it, it flows in a certain way and these guys will be like, "No, I'm not quite sure why it, it repeats so much here or what, why, why there's only half a line there instead of a full line. It sort of breaks up the structure. I'm like, because they were singing it, bro. <laughs> they, were, they were singing it. You repeat things when you sing. It's called a chorus. There's a call. There's an answer. There's a back and forth. There's a poetic flow. And, and if you don't understand that as you read through the Psalms, it can be difficult to grasp the, the structure, right? Because it's different. Paul writes his epistles like a very official book, like a treatise, right? The Psalms are, are poetic. They're, they're expressive in our Bible. And if you read those and you forget that this is to be sung and that it's setting you an example of singing and praise in the church, you're going to miss it. And it is especially, unfortunately, not sure why this is, those dry and dusty theological types that sniff at singing in the church. They kind of don't mind showing up a little bit late because it's just the singing. Wait, when's the real stuff going to start? When's the real service going to begin? I don't want to sing. I want, I want some sound teaching to, to feed my brain. It's unfortunate because Colossians 3.16 tells us this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Oh, yes. Amen. Absolutely. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Ha <laughs> Yes. Teaching. That's what the church is all about. The Bible. Knowledge. Fill up your brain with doctrine. But he continues singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does that look like? Number one, teaching and admonishing one another. Secondly, singing. The word of Christ is dwelling in you. If you have properly valued the word of God, you are going to erupt in songs of praise with joy and gratitude. We sang Psalms this morning. We sang Psalm 34, the song that the guy sang at the end, came from other psalms. We sang a hymn this morning. We sang some spiritual songs this morning. It's kind of nice, to know you're doing exactly what the Bible says, isn't it? You know, there's a parallel verse in Ephesians 5:19 that says, "Be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. If you're full of the Holy Spirit, you're going to sing. That's in the Bible. And there are those that want to minimize that. like, But it's right there in the scriptures. If we want to have sound doctrine, we ought to understand that singing and worshiping is part of it. When you truly understand the truth of your salvation, you just can't help but sing to the Lord cuz you realize how dead you were in your sins and how God in all his glory reached down to save you died on the cross for you rose from the dead has lifted you up and called you his child and you just can't help but i got to sing i got to praise the lord i got to shout i got i got to let this out a little bit Amen. i don't understand those that can and just hear those doctrines and just nod mm-hmm. yes it's, it's all very accurate very good You were a slave and you got set free. You were dead and you got raised back to life. The Lord, when he tells his stories of salvation, he does them so dramatically and wonderfully so that we'll remember them and sing about them and pray about them and tell other people about them. Just can't help it. When the church rediscovered the doctrine of salvation, they rediscovered singing and worship in the church. There's a connection there. Now listen, there is a faction of the church that is obsessed with, with music over and above the word and are obsessed with the mood right we've got to get the right mood and this it's not real worship unless it feels just right okay forget that we're not talking about that today all right there is another faction in the church that has let its spirit atrophy and is so intellectual in its piety that it views emotion and joy and exuberance and celebration with suspicion and if people are exuberant, when's the last time you were exuberant in your worship? The last time you celebrated in your worship? There are those that look at that and say, something must be wrong here. These people don't know God. If they truly knew God, they'd be sitting still with their nose in the book. That's the most important thing. <laughs> but what does that book say about joy and exuberance and celebration? If you want to be good students of the word, what does it say? Psalm 33, 1 through 4. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. I've been declared righteous, I've been justified. Good. And the Bible says you need to shout. Shout for joy. Praise befits the upright. If you're upright, if you've been declared righteous by God, it's only fitting that you praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. What is that? It's a stringed instrument, awful lot like a guitar, actually. Make melody to him with the harp of 10 strings. We've only got six on on that one and four or five on that one, but it's the same idea, right? Sing to him a new song. Oh, not another new song. What does the Bible say? Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Once again, we're back to shouts. Loud shouts. For the work of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. I always thought it was funny. And listen, I love this song. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. But I always thought it was kind of funny that the song Shout to the Lord is so calm and quiet. Because, you know, shout to the Lord all the year, It's beautiful and it's wonderful. I'm not minimizing it. But, you know, a shout song should be something we sh- we're shouting for. You know, many, many times we're more willing to shout for our football team Amen. than we'll shout for the, well, it's not right to shout in God's house. <laughs> Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. There are those that say, well, I don't know that we should have so many different kinds of instruments. It says make melody with instruments of strings. Lots of different kinds of instruments with strings. And if you want to be really biblical, an instrument of ten strings, the only ten-stringed instrument that I'm aware of is is a really heavy metal guitar. (laughs) Well, you got really low strings, so you can just drop it low, and the bass just shakes the whole church. If we want to be really biblical, should we bring that in, maybe? You get the idea. How many times in the Bible does it talk about crashing cymbals? Worshiping the Lord. Well, it's, I don't know that we should have drums in the church. Well, how are you going to obey the command to have crashing cymbals if you don't have cymbals? We don't have cymbals in here. You get, you get the point I'm making, right? What is worship in the Bible? It is theologically informed, Participatory music that enables the believer to access and express the full range of emotion in praise to the Lord God. Let me say that again. Worship, according to the Bible, is theologically informed. I'm not just throwing words up there. We're getting sound truth. Participatory, not just for one person. We're all engaged in this. Music that enables the believer to access and express the full range of emotion. There are some folks that it takes them being in the presence of the Lord, worshiping and singing for them to finally allow themselves to be heartbroken over something that's been breaking their heart for a long time or to finally learn how to celebrate and be joyful again and express the full range of emotion in praise to the Lord God. Not just emotion for the sake of emotion, any more than we have intellect just for the sake of intellect. It's all in praise to the Lord God. You ought to have deep laments in the church that break your heart over sin. There's that song, have you ever heard the Nicole Nordman song, Why? It's about Jesus going to the cross and there's a little girl watching him go and she's asking, why does he have to die? That song breaks my heart every single time. Even though I know he's going to rise from the dead in like five minutes, (laughs) it breaks my heart. It it, it brings you down and you, you just are on your knees crying and weeping before the Lord. And we also ought to have celebratory songs that lift your spirits and get you moving a little bit. And cause bursts of praise, shouts of praise. We're supposed to shout unto the Lord. If we never have worship songs that make it conducive for us to shout unto the Lord, then we need to raise the ceiling a little bit. Why? Because God uses moments of emotional pitch and spiritual clarity to do His work in our hearts. There are people that are so hardened to the gospel. They, They can sit here and listen to me talk to them all day long. But they're not moving. They're not budging. They're getting angry as they hear me speak. But then we begin to play. We begin to sing. and begin to celebrate what God has done. We begin to lament over our sin and, and call out for the Lord to help us in our time of need. And they begin to weep and they break down. And now God can do His work in their heart. I've seen it over and over again. And when you come into the church and you're beginning to sing and you're singing truths that are doctrinal and biblical and scriptural and you know it's right, it, it aligns you. It gets you back in line with where you're supposed to be so that you can... Correct yourself. It is not a mark of maturity to be jaded and distant during worship. Some folks, unfortunately, that's what they think. Being really critical of what the worshipers are doing, is, that's how you know you're mature. Well, I don't know if I'd phrase that song quite like that. Yeah, look at them go. Yeah, it's all nice, but I I know her and she's not really worshiping the Lord. This is just for, you know, there's an example of somebody in the Bible who criticized someone else's worship. Remember this? David was leaping and dancing before the Lord in a linen ephod and he gets home and his wife goes, well, 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 (laughs) look at the King of Israel prancing around in the street in his underwear for all the girls to see. And the Lord struck her with barrenness because of that. You don't make fun of someone else's worship. Amen. You do not do that. That is biblical. It's a mark of imbalance. If you come in to worship the Lord and all you can do is start criticizing things, you got to check your heart, my friend. Same thing when you come in, you can't hear a sermon without saying they're criticizing everything that's being said. And I understand that there are levels of comfort that we all have. There are style preferences that we all have. Some of y'all you want it to be thumping in here you want it to be loud you want to be clapping your hands and celebrating and some of y'all you can go ah oh, okay you know i'm gonna sit out here with my coffee until i hear a quieter song and then i'll come inside <laughs> there's some of y'all that you want it to be down low and you want to have those moments where you can just break before god and that's all great but we need both of those we have style preferences some of y'all grew up on hymns, and that's what you like, and that's what you enjoy. And you hear some of those old songs, and, and a tear comes to your eye, because you were a little kid, you learned how to worship to those songs. There's some of y'all that grew up with southern gospel, some of y'all that grew up with black gospel, some of those like me, that contemporary Christian music is all I've ever known. I, I came up after those debates were over, and I was in a church that had already made its choice. But listen, aren't all those things secondary? Amen. Does, does that really matter? We, we could come up here and do Gregorian chants. Y'all should still be able to worship the Lord Jesus, right? Because what difference does it make? You're praising God. Psalm 145, three through four says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. The only thing that really matters is, is our God worthy of worship through song? And if he is, then we best do it. As soon as sound doctrine was restored in the church, worship music came roaring back. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. So worship through song, we see number one, is very biblical. Number two, it's part of our Protestant heritage. So let's look at this now. What about you? We gather together multiple times a week. We almost always begin with a time of singing and worship through music. How are you taking advantage of this time? Corporate singing is your chance to participate in the service. To worship the Lord who is in our midst. When we gather together, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we all gather together, God's presence is there in a special way. Are you taking advantage of those moments? Everything we do, musically, at least in this church, ought to be and is to facilitate congregational worship. Through the choice of the words that we sing. Very often I've been like, you know, this is a great song, but I feel like it's going to confuse people more than anything else, so let's just leave it out. Through the melodic complexity. People love to make fun of Christian worship songs for being so simple, and there's not a lot of chords, and the melody doesn't move a lot. There's a reason for that. Because we want everybody to be able to sing along. And if every song is like, you raise me up from Josh Groben, a lot of y'all just have to sit back and say, well, okay, not a lot I can do with this one. The keys that we choose... Jacob and Jason and I spend a lot of time figuring out the right key so that the most amount of people will be able to sing the song comfortably. Amen. <laughs> we do everything in order to facilitate worship. We talk an awful lot with our worship team about not being distracting. You know, there's, we don't have this going on here so I can say this. There are a lot of worship teams that, they, it seems like it's all about them. You know, I, I used to do a lot of discipleship of people that want to be worship leaders. And one of the things I always told them, is, don't wear costumes. What are you talking about? I don't wear a costume. I was like, hold on though. Who else dresses like that? <laughs> I'm serious. This is a serious thing. Because you get up there and people look at you and they're like, what is, what, is, what is she wearing? What is he wearing? What is going on here? Are we, are we here to watch you and, and observe you do your thing? Or are we to do this together? However, worship leaders often get accused of playing music like a concert But the people can be just as guilty of treating the time of worship like a concert. As in they stand still, they watch it happen, and they don't engage or participate. Let me give you four reasons why you ought to sing during the time of singing and ought to make it a priority and something that's important in your life. Number one, this is your time to declare God's worth. That's where the word worship comes from. Worthship. Worthship. God is worthy to be praised, so we're going to praise Him. That's what worship is. Isn't God worth all that? You spend your whole week at work where people are using the name of Jesus as a swear word, Amen. and they're making fun of you, and they're making fun of the church, and you're reading those articles talking about how the church is ruining the world, and you come to this place, we're going to gather together, we're going to say, how great is our God? Our God is greater. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. It's important. You need that. It sustains you to keep going. Number two, you get to express your heart to the Lord. There are a lot of things that I don't know why. I really don't know why this is. But you've got something to say to God, and you don't say it. You just keep it in. You're, you don't want to pray about it because you're like, you know what? If this is just going to be a big thing, you know, I'm, I'm upset with God, or I'm afraid, or I'm nervous, and I, you know, I, I don't want to bother the Lord. But you come together, and you start to sing. And the Lord just teases those things out of you, doesn't he? And then you say, Lord, I'm, I'm scared to death. I don't know what's going to happen with this job. Lord, I'm heartbroken. Lord, She says she's going to leave me. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do at this point. God, I'm angry. I'm angry at what's going on in the world around me. You need to teach me to trust you, Lord. This is the time to do that. There's a place for it. God did not save you to be this emotionless automaton walking around saying, I have been saved and that's all I have to say about that. The Lord wants to redeem every part of you and bring it all into subjection to Jesus Christ. That's the next thing. Number three is you set your heart right. You express your heart. I mean, look at the Psalms. There's plenty of things that you wouldn't even feel comfortable saying in church. Amen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You abandoned me, God. Like, I can't even say it. You feel how the room just got real t- tense right there? That's in the Bible. But what happens at the end of that Psalm? Yet, I will praise Him. You get your heart right. You say, I'm scared. I'm angry. I'm sad, whatever it is, but then you bring it back to pray, but I'm going to continue to worship you and praise you, Jesus. That's why I love that song that we sing. The battle belongs. When I fight, I'll fight on my knees because there's so much temptation just to get out and start raging at the world and, and start acting out. But you come in, you remind yourself, yes, there's a fight, but here's how we fight. It brings your heart back into line with the Lord. And number four, you get to unite with your brothers in Christ. You need to be part of the team. Christianity is not a solo activity. We are a team. We work together. We're a family. And when we come together and worship and praise together, it binds us. We're all singing the same words at the same time. It's like that national anthem effect. You ever been to a place where they're not just going to play, but we're going to sing the national anthem? All of a sudden you're standing there and, you know saluting the flag and tears running down your eyes. You're proud to be an American. Well, isn't that... So much more true here as we worship and celebrate God together and you hear the voices all raised together. This is especially cool if you've ever been to like a men's retreat or men's event and you hear all these deep voices just bellowing the good news. It unites us together. We see an example of this in Psalm 73 of all these things going on. This is a psalm of Asaph and I'm not going to read it, but the whole beginning of this psalm is him laying out, I was so jealous of those wicked people and I had convinced myself that I was an idiot for serving God because they're the ones out there making money. They're the ones out there doing all these wicked things that I'm afraid to do and they're getting away with it. Everybody loves them. They come into the temple and nobody even thinks to question them. And here I am keeping my hands clean for no reason. That's the whole first half of the song. If I was like, hey, I wrote a new song for you guys, and that was the whole first half, some of y'all will be like, we got to stop this. we got to <laughs> stop this right now. But in Psalm 73, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. He says, when I came back to the Lord's house, and I was praising the Lord among the people, that's when I remembered their end is not going to be good. Yet my life is going to be with the Lord forever in his house. It's the perfect example of what happens. You come in that door, and you've got all kinds of issues going on. And you're just raging, and you're angry, and you can't focus. And then you start to sing because it's an obligation. But then the next thing you know, you're just, the Lord's setting you loose. He's reminding you of what's true. I'll tell you, God speaks to me during the times of worship and song. Where we're, we're celebrating and we're singing. Sometimes God fixes whatever He wants to do before we even open the Bible. And then we get there and God teaches me, but I'm so ready to receive it. It's Like, yes, Lord. Yep. You already told me that, but this is exactly what I needed to hear. And sometimes when the Bible is open and we begin to study and God's really working on my heart, all I can think is we got to sing. We got to worship. We got to praise the Lord now. Amen. And sometimes it just happens spontaneously. It's, there are a few things more wonderful in the church than the possibility of God manifesting his presence in a heavy way during a time of worship. I love that that song, Holy Spirit. I think the bridge has the most excellent expression of the doctrine of omnipresence. It says, let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. Why do I like that? Because God, God is everywhere, right? We know he's here. We know he fills us. And there's lots of biblical language about calling on the Lord and asking him to show himself. That's not wrong. But what does it say? We know you're here. We just want to see you. We want to know you're there. We want to experience your glory. If Moses was able to ask for that, you, Christian, are certainly able to ask for that. They're saying, Lord, we know you're here. God, we want you to show yourself. I'll tell you, if you've ever had a single moment where God has just laid you out on the carpet during worship, every other worship service you have after that will just take on that much more possibility. Amen. Like this, what, what if the Lord does that again? Or if you've ever come in and you've just been celebrating in the Lord, and it's over and you go, wow, I was, really, uh, I was really getting into that, wasn't I? God is so good. Now it's wrong, and I tell this to our worship team all the time, don't come in here and try to make something happen. You try to make it happen, it's fake, and it's not real. And it makes the reality less special. Amen. But that's the wonderful possibility of worship. All right? We're singing today. You know what happened that one time we sang in here? Same thing with prayer. Same thing with studying the Bible. This could be the day where the Lord decides to show himself in a special way. You need all those long days of not a whole lot happening to prepare you for those moments. But the the worship of the Lord, there's something that he can do there. There's a testimony that I love. There's a song called Faithful God that we used to sing a while ago. And uh, the guy who wrote this song tells a story that... There was a woman in their church who was sick, and she was in the hospital. I don't know what she had, but she said she had a dream where the Lord told her, the red-headed worship leader at your church, she didn't know his name, that he's written a new song, and he needs to come and play that song for you. And so the message came to him, and so he and a couple other folks from the worship team showed up, and she said, you... She had never met before. He says, You've written a new song, haven't you? He goes, Yes, I have. And the song is all about miracles and the Lord healing and the Lord still working today. And the Lord told me you need to play, pray that song for me. And so the team together just pray, played that song in the room and she was healed in that moment. Does the Lord always do that? No, but that's the, that's the wonder of engaging with the Lord through song and through worship. God is able to start doing his thing. And if all of this sounds really unfamiliar to you, then maybe you need to strengthen a part of yourself that has lain dormant for a long time. Maybe your whole life even. What kind of things does the Bible say that it's okay to do during worship? Number one, lifting your hands. That's in the Bible. The Bible says, lifting holy hands unto the Lord. We lift our hands for all kinds of things. Touchdown, yes! Right? When you're a little, you get home from work and your little kid runs up to you, what are they doing? Arms up. We raise our hands for all kinds of things. The Bible tells us to do that here, too. You even see this at, at, at secular concerts, right? Amen. The song is, song is playing, yeah, arms up, because we're excited. We're celebrating. We're engaging with the body. We already talked about shouts, right? Now, be, it's got to be the right moment, by the way, just say that. <laughs> all this needs to, right? Sometimes folks can try to draw attention to themselves rather than really, you know, doing what the Lord is calling them to do. Well, crying, is weeping allowed during worship? Yes, it is. Amen. David said, I flood my pillow with tears every night. David was very comfortable with weeping during worship. How about clapping? The well, Bible just straight up says that, doesn't it? Clap your hands to the Lord, all ye lands, right? You've got to get it on the right beat. That's okay, you know, clap, right? Amen. Is kneeling acceptable? You kneel before kings. Sometimes if you've been fighting the Lord... You've been denying something you know you're supposed to do, it's appropriate for you to get on your knees and remind yourself who's king in this situation. Standing is acceptable. That's in the Bible too. They would stand to pray in the New Testament. Is prayer acceptable during worship? Oh, yes. Do I need to sing every single word? Well, it's great to sing, but maybe take a time and start to pray. Say, Lord, I know what you're trying to say to me during this moment. Again, don't be distracting. The Bible even says that, that speaking and singing in tongues is appropriate during worship, that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You can read about that. What about opening your Bible and reading that during worship? Yeah, you better believe it. I know that verse is from somewhere in here. Where is that? And you open it up. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. And then you sing that song with a whole fresh enthusiasm. Amen. How about just stopping and listening? Is that acceptable? Yeah, it is. Old Testament talked about they had soloists in the temple that would sing. Special music. We don't do a whole lot of that. We did that this morning. But nothing wrong with just sitting and listening. See, I don't know the songs. Well, the words are right there, and you can hear them play. Just listen and say, amen. I like that. I agree, I agree with that, Lord. Most of these songs are pretty catchy. You can pick them up after once or twice, right? Amen. How about dancing? Uh-oh. <laughs> Tyler said dancing. Half of you all don't think that's very funny. Hey, it's in the Bible, isn't it? I will dance before the Lord. David danced before the Lord. Again, one of those things that do not start drawing a bunch of attention to yourself. But the idea that we've got to stand that attention and that this this is what spirituality is. No, it's not. You know, perhaps you were trained that emotion or exuberance in church is a bad thing. If you were taught that, I'm so sorry. That is not what the Bible says. And you've cut yourself off from experiencing and engaging with the Lord during the time of song. Or perhaps you feel cut off from God during worship because of sin in your life. Or because it's just been so long since God really touched my life. Or there's just distractions. You know, you can't go five minutes without your your fingers starting to itch to get that phone out and check Facebook or Instagram or something. That's a tragedy too. I think it'd be appropriate to quote from a couple worship songs as we come to the end here. Keith Green, who's one of my favorite worship leaders of all time, he has a song that goes like this. Maybe you feel the same way. My eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. What can be done with an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your blood. Don't you love that? Don't you ever feel like you you come to church and you know that you ought to be you ought, you ought to be more, but I just feel like my eyes are dry. I I, I couldn't I couldn't get excited if I wanted to. Now, this is a guy that wrote worship songs for a living and he felt the same way. He's like, Lord, you've got to soften me up. I've become hard and calloused. If you find your walk with God is lonely and hard, it's time for you to sing, my friend. Time for you to look past the style and the newness of the songs to you, maybe, or the oldness of the song, and hear the voice behind them to resonate with the heart of what's being sung and with the Lord who is being praised. James 5.13 says, if anyone is, is full of joy, Let him sing. Tying it right there, if anyone's suffering, let him pray. If he's full of joy, let him sing. If he needs healing, let him come and ask for help. He says, this is part of what we do. We sing as God's people. Song is a way to kickstart the process of praise, to soften you up for God to speak to you. That's what Elisha did. Elisha, we need a word from the Lord. He says, okay, bring me a musician. 2 Kings 3.15, it says, as the musician played, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and began to speak to him. So those that say, I hate it when we're doing an altar call and somebody's up there playing on that piano and is kind of noodling and kind of trying to set the mood. Well, Elisha did it. <laughs> I mean, think about it. God gave Israel songs for every occasion, especially the great festivals. Was, when you're going to come to Passover, here's a long list of songs I want you all to sing on the way. So that when you get here, your mind is full of the memories, your heart is excited, and you're already in the mood to worship. So that when you come, and you come to the temple, and you offer your sacrifice, and you partake of the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs, that you're ready to worship me. So we ought to do the same. At the driest time of the church's history, we learn not just to study, but to sing. And we've got to remember that. The Protestant slogan is Semper Reformanda is latin which means always reforming the idea being we're never going to get to the point all right we fixed it don't change anything ever we're always coming back and looking to ourselves to make sure are we doing this god's way have we let traditions come in just like they did that have blocked us off from the lord have we started to rebuild those walls around god so that the people feel like they're never engaging with the lord they love We still need that. As your pastor, I call you to delight in the Lord afresh through song. And to let him turn your heart loose a little bit. Is it gonna look the same way for everybody? No, it's not. Guys, the way they worship tends to look very different than the way the ladies do. Depending on your background, you know, you might only have you know a certain limit on where you can go. That's fine. Just explore all of it. Let the Lord teach you to celebrate, let the Lord teach you to lament. Let the Lord teach you to sing and not care about what you sound like because He doesn't care. Let Him put a new song in your mouth. In 1517, the Lord put a new song in the mouth of the church and He's still got more to give. And I'll close with one more modern day worship song that you all know, but I think it's so perfect and it's something that we maybe need to hear again and remind ourselves on this Reformation Day. When the music fades... And all is stripped away. And I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth. That'll bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it when it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus.